more alive. That's right, yes. And beer, I can't, I just, I used to like beer in a boat, but uh, blows you up too much. Oh, it does. Although Harold Wilson, strange enough, is on a beer diet. Yeah. But I don't see how that works. That was I mean, all. How does that work? Because it inflates everybody else. Oh, we're on, are we? Are we on? Sorry, forgive me. Five, four. Three, we'll come back to Randolph two. later. Do you think your stand on civil rights was understood? By whom? By the, by the American public? Perhaps uh, uh, you ask, is it understood? Is it appreciated by blacks? Not by very many, no. Uh, is it understood by professional uh, civil libertarians? Uh, maybe. I was convinced that on this issue, that one of the problems we'd had, one of the reasons for the race riots, there'd been too many promises made, too much talk and too little action. When we had the problem, you know, when the Supreme Court uh, indicated in 1970 that desegregation, de jure desegregation must take place at once, it was quite a problem. We didn't know what the uh, South would do, whether we were going to have to do what Eisenhower did at Little Rock. Uh, Wallace and others were talking about defiance. We finally decided that uh, the best way to do it was to get in both the blacks and the whites, which I did. I got them into the White House, and I went to them on occasion. Now, I don't mean we get all the credit for that. The people that get the credit are the blacks and the whites who work together to end desegregation, de jure desegregation in the South. And that was an accomplishment. I'll never forget one of those meetings. After I had finished one, I think it was the one with the Mississippi group, and they were a tough bunch because the blacks and the whites there were pretty far apart. And now they've gotten together, thank God and work this thing out. One of them came up to me and he said, well, he said, yesterday, he said, I was arrested for swimming on the wrong beach. And the day I'm in the office of the President of the United States, if this can happen, anything is possible. You know how they say that history repeats itself? Well, my dad had a front row seat to this particular moment in American history, and it feels so much like today. White people never try to stop the deaths, but they always expect black people to stop the violence. The myth they were living with, the mask of color, it was not so much destroying black people as it was destroying whites. I am not concerned with the color of man. I am concerned with the ability of man. I'm bringing you some of the most compelling tapes from my dad's archive of over 10,000 interviews. In this episode, we're going to hear from four men who use their talents, writing, activism, humor, and athletics to address racism in America. I feel that the problem in America today is not a problem of black against white, but a problem of right against wrong. I'm Wilfred Frost, and these are the Frost Tapes. Episode 5, Race and Discrimination. You were talking about that's the problem of America now. What is the greatest problem we all face now, do you think? And now, it's my great pleasure to welcome a man whose list of credits and books and plays is a stunning one. Like The Fire Next Time, Nobody Knows My Name, Another Country, Go Tell It on the Mountain, Blues for Mr. Charlie. Will you welcome Mr. James Baldwin?
welcome. It's very good to see you again. How After all these years. Yes, indeed. Where is home for you now? It's Paris more than here, isn't it? Oh, no. I left Paris a long time ago. Um... At the age of 24, with just $40 in his pocket, Baldwin had famously left New York City for Paris to escape racism in America. I can't breathe, he'd told a friend. I have to look from outside. Well, to be honest, you know, it's, home is where I can work. And uh, when I'm here, it's a little difficult to... There's so many things happening in this curious country that it's hard to keep ahead of events, not to say assassinations. So that from time to time, you know, I have to leave to work. And at the moment, I have a, a flat in Istanbul. Istanbul? Mm-hmm. Is it a good place to work? Yeah, for me, it's a great place to work. It is um, both in Europe and in Asia, which means it is neither Christian nor Muslim, neither white nor black. Are you Christian or Muslim? Or, or? I was born a Baptist. <laughs> <laughs> It's not that funny. <laughs> what, what are you now? It is to me. <laughs> and what are you now? I'm trying to become a human being. And when does one know one's reached that stage? I don't think you ever do. You work at it. You know, you take it as it comes. You try not to to tell too many lies. You try to love other people and hope that you'll be loved. Do you feel as black now as when you were born? <laughs> or, do you, or do you I, feel you've moved into an area like you were saying you've left being a Baptist? I mean, are you more conscious now of being black than when you were a child? I think you should ask the question of the president. Not a, you should ask the question of Richard Nixon. Or the Attorney General. I don't feel either black or white, but I am the survivor, in a way, of... Um, how can I put it? Baldwin's it views had been forged in Harlem. The grandson of a slave, he'd grown up poor and had been forced to raise his seven younger siblings. As early as ten, he'd been abused by New York City police officers. As a young man, the years of racial slurs, police harassment and segregation wore him down and compelled him to hide in libraries, which ultimately sparked his literary career. It doesn't matter how I feel, but I'm aware of what's happening in the country. If I say, you know, you should ask the president how black I feel, it's another way of saying, asking you to look at the record achieved in this country since 1956. I'm talking about the life and death of the civil rights movement. I may feel in some ways blacker than I felt when I was younger. I know the effect on the police of this country, the authority given them by the present administration, and that acts on black people's heads, black people and poor people and Mexicans and all of the dissidents and all of the... Pariahs of the society. You, but presumably you feel there has been some progress since 1956, but you use the phrase, the life and death of the civil rights movement. Do you think the civil rights movement is dead then? I think the civil rights movement was always, it always contained within itself. Um, and Martin knew this finally too, that's why he died in Memphis, fighting for a raise for garbage men. In the beginning, we thought that there was a way of reaching 
the conscience of the people of this country. We hoped there was. And I must say that we did, we, meaning several blacks and several whites, noted everything in our power to make the American people realize that the myth that they were living with, the mask of color, it was not so much destroying black people as it was destroying whites. I did not elect Nixon. I do not go to dinner with Acnew. I know a great deal about the Attorney General and yet more about the silent majority. I am not a young man, but I'm a black American. And I know something about the crime of silence. I know what happens in San Francisco and in Chicago and in New York when one of our representatives wants to protect the morale of the police. I know what a stop and frisk law means. It means search and destroy. I know something about the history black people have endured and are still enduring in this place. It doesn't mean I hate white people who are much more victimized than I, but it is terrible to watch a nation lose itself. Obviously you select You've, you've, you've got to add, though, into that equation millions, thousands, or some white people who've striven in the last 10 or 20 years, born with a natural feeling that people of another colour are somehow inferior, who've fought that back for 10 or 20 look, years. Look, You've got to add that to the equation. I but mean, I'm not, but I'm not, I'm not, I'm not talking about white or black. That's the great trick bag into which America may have tumbled. We're not on the edge of a racial war. We're on the edge of a civil war. I'm not talking about color. I'm not talking about race. Malcolm X said, I paraphrase it, but it is perfectly true, that white is a state of mind. I'm saying that to be a black person in this century and to be relatively conscious is to recognize to what extent the wealth and the power of the Western world depend on your condition, that your condition is in some sense indispensable to that wealth and power. I know that if you're a black cat living in this place and in this time, though you may spend your entire life knocking on the radiator, knocking on the steam pipes to get the heat, trying to get, you know, protection against the rats and the roaches and all of those horrible details one lives within the ghetto and gets used to, you also know that if oil is discovered beneath the tenement in which you are living and dying, that wealth will not belong to you. You know, what white Americans think is happening in the world and what black people must deal with day by day are very different and the gap is very sinister.
I will tell you this, my friend. I will tell you all. And it is true if I don't say so. For every Sammy Davis, for every Jimmy Baldwin, for every black cat you have heard of in the history of this country, and I kid you not, you can check out the record. There are a hundred of us dead. I, in my own lifetime, can carry you to some of the graveyards where boys just like me, brighter than me, more beautiful than I, perish because they were black. Thank you for doing what a program should always do and leave us all to carry on with the conversation. Thank you, David. We've got to end it there. Thank you. Thank you to all my guests. James Baldwin felt that to write about America, he'd have to leave the country altogether. And he wasn't alone. African-American artists like Josephine Baker, Nina Simone and Richard Wright would all adopt France as a safe house from discrimination. But Baldwin never totally escaped. The FBI tapped his phone and even in Europe ordered agents to follow him. They'd amass a file that was 1,884 pages long. The next guest faced similar harassment from the FBI, much like Baldwin, and it would eventually compel him to leave America too. We want to find out what he's been doing just lately. Will you welcome Stokely Carmichael? It was 1970 and few figures had seen and undergone as much change as Stokely Carmichael. In the early 60s, Carmichael's commitment to non-violence seemed unflappable. Marching side by side with civil rights icons like John Lewis and Martin Luther King Jr., Carmichael was arrested for civil disobedience more than 32 times. But over time, his views hardened. Where others saw progress, he simply saw more and more of his friends being arrested, hurt and killed. And by the late 1960s, Carmichael became more militant. Why have you been out of the headlines in the last year or two? What have you been doing, in fact? Oh, I have been studying. You see, it's necessary for people who are serious in liberation movements to do study because all liberation movements are based on historical analyses. And you must make sure... Another reason he'd been out of the headlines is because of the FBI. Fearing that Carmichael could become another Malcolm X, the FBI smeared the young activist's reputation by planting rumors among his allies that he was a CIA informant. And the ploy worked. Carmichael was expelled from the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and ostracized from the Black Panthers. The harassment ultimately compelled him to leave the United States for Africa. He changed his name to Kwame Ture. When he returned to the US two years later and came on Dad's show, FBI agents monitored the program. Tell me, Stokely, if, you, if the world was being created anew by you, as it were, would you... Uh, with all the experience you have of the world behind you. Which isn't much. Well, you've seen a bit of it. Would you create black and white and yellow again? Or would the world be much better if you created with everybody the same color? I don't know because, I mean, color doesn't make any difference to me and I don't think it's ever made any difference to most Africans. Wherever the African has gone, you will find the African has been both willing and capable to peacefully coexist with people of other races. It is the European who is unwilling or incapable of coexisting with people of other races. Therefore, that question must be asked of the European, and we can do that historically. You have in South Africa a settler colony, you would agree? A settler colony is where Europeans leave their continent 
and go to another continent, take it over, subjugate the people. So that the Africans, they are willing to live with the Europeans. But it's the Europeans who have a fascist state, correct? In that particular case. In that particular case. So you will agree that in that particular case, it is the European who is either unwilling or incapable of coexisting with the African, correct? In South Africa. In South Africa. And would you say the same for Mozambique? I don't know enough Mozambique about Mozambique to talk about How about Zimbabwe? You would admit that Zimbabwe is a settler colony. Australia is also a settler colony. Israel is a settler colony. Canada is a settler colony. The United States is a settler colony. Now the reason why we don't recognize the United States and Canada as being settler colonies is because to be a successful settler colony, you must commit genocide against the traditional owners of the land. That's what the Europeans who came to America did. They then changed the name and called it America. And they call themselves Americans. When you say Americans, you think they come from this place, this earth. And you forget that they commit genocide. If you call them Europeans, which is what they are, then you see that they're a settler colony who have no business here, who have in fact committed genocide against the red man. I'm giving you an example of where again the European was incapable or unwilling to coexist with peoples of other races. But there are also cases where other races are unable to coexist with Europeans. I am not even denying that. That's not the question we were raising. We were raising the question of black or white. And I was giving you the case of the European, which is a correct case and you cannot disagree with me. But you People get mad because my analysis of history and my facts are correct. They should not get mad at me. They should get mad at their own history. As you look ahead, do you, are you confident that black and white can live together? I don't think that's the question for black people. It's the question for white people because black people have shown their willingness and capability to coexist with white people. Well, I don't know if white people would have tolerated being slaves for so long and then tolerated all of the oppression that we've tolerated for so many hundreds of years. But now, how do you see the future, is what I'm saying? For me, I see the future based in a concept that we must understand the basic contradictions in society today. Those contradictions are class and race and that when we talk about it, we must understand that very carefully. I think the world is full of institutionalized racism, as it is also with great class contradictions which come from capitalism. And I think that my ideology must give me how to deal with class schisms, capitalism, and how to deal with racism. Carmichael, like many other black thinkers, argued that true racial justice hinged on rethinking economic policy. The two were inseparable. We've heard this before. In our second episode, Jesse Jackson had talked about achieving prosperity through a redistribution of wealth. Earlier, James Baldwin claimed the condition of African Americans depended on their relationship to those with wealth, while Martin Luther King Jr. often called for the abolition of poverty. For all of them, it wasn't a question of identifying the problem, but rather a question of finding the solution, a question of tactics. To what extent do you think it's possible that when people come to write the history of the last few years, they will write how provocative people like yourself, and going further, I mean, to militant people who involved in violence, put back the cause of your race rather than put it forward. Or they will say that the ones who were smart enough to deal on both the political and the military level were the ones who advanced the cause tremendously. For example, when George Washington was fighting, there were many people who were telling him he shouldn't fight. They held back the course of that history, did they not? Yeah, we're talking about today. Yes, I know. I'm coming to today. And I'm saying today the people who are organizing our people to survive are the ones who are advancing our race. Because it is clear that this country is not going to get any better. It is going to get much worse. 
It is taking a complete swing to the right and the only out for it politically is fascism. And it will do that. That is a political fact. But there's one other fact about the way life goes today. And that is that people's opinions and progress or the reverse of progress happen not in response to positive speeches. It is equally possible that outrages or violence committed by your side will aid the other side rather than your side. Now you must... Yes, but this is, this is, it's, it's like, it's, well, you have to go back to the first act. Now, I went to the Bronx High School of Science right here in the Bronx, and they taught me what they call, I think it was Newton's fourth law. He says, for every action, there is an opposite and equal reaction. This is a scientific law. It cannot be denied, correct? Yeah. The Europeans took one action. That action must be opposed by an equal and opposite reaction from the Africans. That has nothing to do with whether or not Stokely Carmichael is preaching violence. That is a scientific law observed by Newton. Would you like to discourage violence if you could? Yes, I want very much to discourage it. But I cannot discourage it in the face of oppression. I'd be a fool to do that. I am not intending to be like the rabbis when the ghettos were coming in to encourage their people not to fight. That's absurd. I would never do that. I'm a man. I would say that my people should get up like men, and if we must die, let us fight. But I wasn't saying, would you discourage self-defense? Would you encourage people to take the offensive? If you're going to change the status quo, Mr. Frost, you must take the offensive. If you're but on take the self violent offensive, Mr. Mr. Frost, if you snatch this away from me and it belongs to me, correct? You've taken it from me. Now you may have taken half of it from me, and I, if I keep my other half, I'll never gain anything until I fight to take back the half that you've taken from me. Is that correct? Yes. In order for me from take back the other half, I must launch an aggressive program. Revolutionaries, by their very act, must be aggressive because they're fighting to change the status quo. They're not fighting to just stand there in self-defense. You don't need to do that. I mean, we're living in ghettos. We don't have to fight. We can stay in ghettos. We can stay in the gutter. We fight because we want to get out of the ghettos. You fight for a better life. So when you fight to change the status quo, you must make advances. But what about the young guy who comes to you and says the only way he thinks he can point out the injustice that's been done to his race mm. is by a bombing? by bombing a store on the corner of someone who, let's say, is known to be a bigot, and he believes that that will advance the cause, though it may cause death. What would you say to him? I would first say to him that he must be sure he has the correct political ideology, because when you fight, you must fight on the political and military level. Even if his ideology is correct, he wants right. to bomb that shop, what would you say to him? I would say to him, my brother, you should do what you feel is correct. If you know now that you have the correct political ideology, then you should move to that position which you think will help solve the problem. And if the man lay dead as a result, would you feel in any way responsible? I have nothing to do with that. Many people die all the time. It's ridiculous now to come that's a total cop-out. That's a total cop-out. But it is a fact, isn't it? It's a fact. You're asking it me may... to be responsible for the individual death of one person, which I have not killed. You're trying to say now on television... Which you've not tried to prevent. I'm merely saying... Do you try to prevent the... Have you tried to prevent the death of South Africans? Have you tried to prevent the death of people in Rhodesia, black people in Rhodesia from your Europeans? Have I, you tried to I'm stop it? I'm asking you in a have you tried to stop it? If someone came to me and said... White people never try to stop the deaths, but they always expect black people to stop the violence. No, listen, if somebody comes to me and says... Dad and Carmichael continued to argue over who held responsibility for political violence for quite some time. And it was compelling to watch, even though their positions on that particular issue grew further apart. In that situation, because to kill is wrong. But over the course of the interview, there were also plenty of moments where they explored how white and black might be able to find common ground. Who would you say, in fact, was the white man and the black man 
whom you most admire in the world? I mean, who, maybe who formulated your thoughts most, but who would you, if you had to use a word like, a dramatic word like hero, who would you say were your heroes? Well, certainly from the black world, that would be easy. And of course, for me, it would be Dr. Nkrumah. Uh, there were lots of other people, Lumumba, Huey P. Newton, I consider to be one of my heroes, uh, Malcolm X. Uh, of course, uh, the Honorable Marcus Garvey, I consider to be one of my greatest heroes. Now, in the white world, let me see. Well, to be very, to be very honest with you, wow, that's a very hard question. I'm serious. Because all of the people I would thought to admire, I've come to find out they've lied so much. I mean, like George Washington. When I found out he had slaves, I was totally crushed. Abraham Lincoln. When I found out he didn't really care about freeing the slaves, he was only concerned about the country and what he said about black people, I was thoroughly crushed. So you see, the people who I were held up as heroes have been crushed for me. But I could not say that I admire Johnson, I could not say that I admire Nixon, I could not say I admire Truman, I could not say I admire uh, Roosevelt, I could not say I admire Churchill. I could not, because all of these people, while they were doing great things for white society, were doing things against my people. So I could not say that they are great people. I could admire their geniuses, but I could not admire them. As we mentioned, we know now that the FBI was monitoring this interview. But their focus wasn't just on Carmichael. A Freedom of Information request after Dad died showed that the FBI, much like Nixon, monitored lots of Dad's guests. They even, at one point, sent an agent to sit in the audience. But I was even more surprised to learn that Dad himself was a person of interest. An FBI memo reads, Frost, who makes practice of having controversial guests on his program, professes to have an English background, indicating he's appeared extensively on television in Great Britain. You are requested to conduct extremely discreet check RE Frost and advise Bureau promptly. As the FBI memo said, Dad, of course, had an English background and had been on TV extensively in the UK. But he'd started off as a satirist, not an interviewer. I say that in Shepherd's Bush this afternoon, thieves got away with 170 miles of pork sausage. Police are looking for four men in a long, thin truck. Naturally, Dad had a great fondness for other comedians who, instead of just making jokes about pork, often used their comedy as a way of exposing hypocrisies and social problems. One of Dad's frequent guests on The David Frost Show was comedian Dick Gregory. Will you welcome, please, Mr. Dick Gregory. An influence on Richard Pryor and Dave Chappelle, Gregory was one of the first black performers to mix comedy with civil rights activism, sometimes to the discomfort of white audiences. And we like to say thank you. It's a good crowd, good audience, you know. Figure this out for a case. Can you believe I have two cops in Chicago suing me for kicking them and biting them while they was trying to throw me in front of a train? <laughs> so I called up this one cop. I said, hey, baby Dick Gregory, I bit you. Oh, he got upset. Yeah, I said, look, I didn't call you to have you cuss me out. I just want you to know that five days before I bit you, I was bitten by a dog that had hooping rabies. Now, that scared him. Oh, yeah. He said, uh, anything gonna happen to me? I said, not this week. <laughs> but if you wake up one day next week with a strange taste for dog biscuits, 
you know, this is my, my 14th month of not eating any solid food in protest of the war in Vietnam. And the reason I mention that to you now is because I'm hungry. <laughs> you know, the hardest thing about going on a long fast really gets you is your friends and people close to you, they really believe you're going to die. They start acting all different. They don't loan you no money no more. <laughs> the president of my bank always loaned me money, you know? He said, Mr. Gregory, I love you. I admire everything you stand for. I don't mind making this loan for you, but you have to come in with 10 co-signers that's eaten. Gregory was known for his hunger strikes. A few years earlier, after he was arrested for protesting laws discriminating against Native Americans, he began a 39-day hunger strike in jail. And later, he'd organize hunger strikes against apartheid, against police brutality, and in favor of the Equal Rights Amendment. I was just back there in the back uh, talking to one of the newspaper reporters from the New York Times. He said, I'm from the New York Times. I'd like to get a, a, a statement for you. How you feel about what Vice President Agnew has said about the press? And uh, I said, look, that's white folks' business. He said, what do you mean by that? I said, you white folks put in Agnew and Nixon. It's just one black cat in America I know that voted for Agnew and Nixon, and he's missing. Gregory, to say the least, was not a fan of the Nixon administration, and the government was no fan of his either. Like Baldwin and Carmichael, he too was being tailed by the FBI. In fact, J. Edgar Hoover, the FBI director, wrote that, quote, sophisticated, completely untraceable means of neutralizing Gregory should be developed. In a later memo, Hoover even concocted a plan to get the mafia to silence the comedian. And, you know, just so much is going on. Nixon just got back in the country from a very successful trip. Matter of fact, I get a little nervous when the president and the first lady leave the country because I just feel they might know something, you know. <laughs> I don't really want to scare you, but are you aware of the fact that when Nixon was overseas, Spiro Agnew was the number one man in charge? I mean, it scared me so bad, I sat down and wrote a letter to the astronauts in quarantine and asked them to pray for us. But, you know, I was, I was very elated as I sit there and looked at man take his first step on the moon, and we left our little plaque there, we come in peace, tell that to the Indians, huh? But no, no, what was really interesting, I was thrilled. I was just so elated watching him, you know, walk. I got on the phone and I called Tom Payne, head of the NASA program. I said, hey, baby, Dick Gregory. I said, congratulations, but I want to know when you're going to use some black astronauts. Yeah, don't laugh. We got some. Yeah, I didn't know what he told me. He says, we plan on using a bunch of them when we make that first space trip to the sun. You know, when you stop and think about it, life is, is so exciting these days. When you stop and think, we take three American astronauts, put them in a capsule, blast them off. They go all the way from the Earth, through the atmosphere, through the radiation, land all the way on the moon, get out, walk around, get back in the spaceship, come back to Earth with no problems. But you couldn't take those same three cats and get them to move a black family into white suburbs without some problems, right? <laughs> Of course, there's a kernel of truth in every good joke, and Gregory's sharp wit came from being a keen observer and participant in the struggles of the time. Dad sat down with Gregory after his routine for a candid discussion about Gregory's point of view. Welcome back. Thank you very much indeed, Dick, oh, for that. Pleasure. You've never been in better form. I was, I was fascinated. I was reading a quote of yours, Dick, in fact, where you said that you didn't think that the great problem today was racism and so on, as some people say, but you thought the great problem today is poverty, you said. Yeah, well, 
I think we have a tremendous problem in the country of racism. I mean, this is a racist nation. There's so few of us that's aware of it, and all of us is guilty of it to certain degrees. Uh, I have to take the blame for what's happening on the Indian Reservation because I'm part of a system. Can you imagine up on the Indian Reservation, they live in there against their will. We have them forced upon the reservation. And then after doing that, we add insult to injury. We have the nerve to teach the Indians that Columbus discovered America because they do not control their own educational system. In a racist society where people might not directly be guilty of racism, these things can slip through. Very few people is following what's happening in the country close enough. You see the, the poor white hillbilly in America, nobody cares about. And I say this from this standpoint, that the poor white man in this country is poorer than the poorest black man has ever been. Now, he always had a cop-out because I was his nigger. And the black man is not America's nigger anymore. So the poor white man in America now is going to have to deal with his problems. He can't go to bed with mental peace knowing that he's hungry. He can't go to bed continuously reading the paper, seeing where black communities get huge anti-poverty grants, and there's no tremendous anti-poverty grants going to the white community. So I feel because of this, you're going to have a tremendous upsurge of a working class revolution. I say that the white man is much more poor than the black man. Let me qualify this. Uh, regardless to how white folks felt about black people, they would still hire my grandmother to come in the house and work and clean up the kitchen. Now, there's no white family in America that's going to bring a poor white hillbilly in their house to do nothing. So consequently now, he's the low man on the tolling pole. And I think that, you know, that when America wakes up and realize that we have tremendous problems to solve of poverty in this country, everybody now is interested in the large urban cities. Now, when do we sit down and do the research and decide we're going to go in and build the rural communities up? You know, if you are born in Gooseneck, Nebraska, or Yadjo, Georgia, you are an American and you have a right to good medical facilities, to good schools. Can you imagine black and white folks in the South got to go to schools with no chemistry to buildings, no chemistry departments, no, no good math department. But when they graduate from high school, we in America set standards and say, you must qualify to go to this college. And I think we're in, in a period now where the poor man in this country is going to rise up black, white, Puerto Ricans, Mexicans, Indians, and this country's gonna be in a lot of trouble. And I feel that the problem in America today is not a problem of black against white, but a problem of right against wrong. See, that covers everybody. And I think we have moved into an era today where we're gonna get into a workers' revolution, where we're talking about the poor man. This is the number one issue. A problem between right and wrong. When I heard those words, it reminded me of another interview Dad did, which I feel is a powerful way to close this episode. It's Dad's interview with African-American Olympic sprinter Jesse Owens. Owens famously won four gold medals at the 1936 Olympics held in Berlin. You just ruled those Olympics, didn't you? Well, we were very fortunate. Whenever Hitler would uh, let yeah. anybody go <laughs> Well, you know, people talked about Hitler, and they'll ask you, did you see Hitler? And yes, I saw him every day. And then they wanted to know if I shook hands with him. Well, no, frankly, I didn't shake hands with him. I didn't go over there to shake hands with him. We went to run and run we did. We had a marvelous time. So sorry that he didn't. And I'm on the David Frost show today having a marvelous time. And where he is is no particular concern of mine. But uh... His achievement was viewed as proof that Hitler's master race ideas were baseless 
and he was lauded as a hero in the American press as a result. But back in America, Owen still had to sit in the back of a bus. President Roosevelt declined to invite him to the White House, and when a celebration banquet was held in his honor at the Waldorf Astoria in New York, Owens wasn't allowed to walk through the main door. In the years between his athletic achievements and this interview in 1970, Owens had struggled at times to simply get by. And while later in life his views would become more radical, in the early 70s he remained remarkably optimistic in the face of oppression. Tell me, when were you most, uh, mo most aware of discrimination? It happened when I was in college. This was my sophomore year in college and we were on our way to Bloomington, Indiana. We stopped off at a restaurant and we went in and they said that they could not serve us. We had two black individuals on the team, a fellow by the name of David Albritton and myself. David Albritton now is a state legislator in the state of Ohio. And he was my teammate in high school. And I remember the captain of our, of our track team a fellow by the name of Moore and another boy that was a great half-miler by the name of Charlie Beetham brought some food out to us on that day and we were in the car and out of the man that owned the restaurant rushed out, knocked the food out of our hands, called us some very unkind names. Dave Albritton being a man of about 6'2", 175 pounds, a light heavyweight champion of amateur boxing in Ohio, stood back and wanted to hit him. And I says, no, you can't do that. And I stood by and I says, no, we, we cannot win this one. So as we rode down to Bloomington, I said to him, I says, David, the only way that we're going to win, win this round, is that we've got to beat his counterpart. We ran that afternoon. We set records that afternoon. And when the track meet was over, the man that knocked the food out of our hands had his son at the meet, and he was the first one to ask to sign this autograph for his son. That round we won. And we won it day after day week after week, by performance. I wanted a man to know me, not because I was black, but I wanted him to know me and consider me a man simply because of the ability in which I was displaying upon the field of competition. And in our lives today, I am not concerned with the color of man. I am concerned with the ability of man. You must have seen a lot of prejudice in your life. But you sound as if you're really confident that it can be defeated. We can have all the legislation in the world, David. We can have legislation against discrimination. We can have legislation against many other things. But there's one thing that you cannot do. You cannot legislate the heart of man. And the heart of man is where it's going to come. Because legislation will say that there is no discrimination. But it doesn't make it so. But as long as man feels within his heart that we remove the color of man and we decide a man's ability upon the man himself, then we have a greater understanding of what life is all about. Coming up next on The Frost Tapes, a bonus episode featuring a never-before-heard interview with Joe Biden in 1987.
We have elected uh, scoundrels in America because, because the people have said, well, at least there are scoundrels. But that it comes back in the end to character. I think so. I think so. This president, the thing that I disagree with him most about is the way he has divided this nation. But the harder test, David, is not the one, can I do it better than my opponent? The harder test, when everybody goes to bed and you're sitting in this library by yourself and you ask yourself, now can I be the kind of president that I think America should have? Can I be the kind of president that Abraham Lincoln was? Can I be the kind of president Franklin Roosevelt was? Can I, can I be a great president? These interviews have been edited for length and clarity. The Frost Tapes is a production of iHeartRadio and Paradine Productions. Executive producers of The Frost Tapes are Wilfred and George Frost. Executive producer for iHeartMedia is Mangesh Hatikada. Produced by Ryan Murdoch and Nikki Etor. Written by Lucas Riley, Ryan Murdoch and Wilfred Frost. Directed and edited by Ryan Murdoch with help from Abu Zafar, Michelle Lands and Josh Fisher. Fact-checked by Austin Thompson. Special thanks to David Peck at Reeling in the Years Productions and Morgan Lavoie of iHeartMedia.